BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. In his new book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food, acclaimed chef Marcus Samuelson highlights black chefs and recipes that he says have been underrated and overlooked for far too long. When Americans think of black cuisine, they think soul food, he said, but that is only one of numerous traditions. Samuelson is a regular on Food Network and PBS and operates over a dozen restaurants in the United States and abroad. We'll talk to him about the book, black cooking, and get his thoughts on the dire state of the restaurant industry amid the coronavirus pandemic. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Cassava dumplings with callaloo puree, okra and creek seafood stew, braised goat shoulder with locust bean and chili oil. Those are just a few of the dishes featured in Chef Marcus Samuelson's new cookbook, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food, which introduces readers not only to new recipes, but to black chefs and food experts shaping American food culture. Samuelson himself is a champion of cooking competitions, Top Chef Masters and Chopped All-Stars, a winner of multiple James Beard Foundation Awards for his work as a chef and TV host, and author of the New York Times bestselling memoir titled Yes, Chef. Welcome to Forum, Marcus Samuelson. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So tell me, what was the genesis for a book like The Rise, which is really a unique kind of project? Well, I felt it was the time to celebrate Black excellence in food in a way that, you know, gives and honors, respect and, and highlights the authorship of Black cooking in America, the incredible uh, influences and benefits that American cuisine have had from Black cooks and chefs through generation, but also set the memory straight. You know, if you don't have their authorship, you can't really have correct memories about it, and you can't build the right aspiration. So um, a celebration and acknowledgement of what Black chefs, that we're not monolithic, that we have many different, we come from many different point of views, and that's what the book highlights. So some food media outlets were amongst those that were called out and taken to task this year for their lack of diversity, right? Do you feel like this will be a true turning point for the industry when it comes to inclusion and what culinary traditions it honors? And what do you think a cookbook or what do you hope a cookbook like The Rise brings to that conversation? Well, I mean, 
what you know, the rise is something that I worked on for four years, right? My books takes all my books take three to four years in the making. So, you know, when we launched a book, we have no idea what to project what the conversation in American food is going to be on right. 48 months later. But this is a subject that I lived, I breathe, and I care about. And so many of my amazing colleagues are African American chefs, writers, uh, photographers, storytellers, and I felt. We, there's five original cuisines in American food that stems out of black cooking, Creole, low country, Southern food, um, Cajun, and barbecue, right? They all are narratives and, and rituals out of the African-American experience. And that needed to be highlighted. Um, and that, if you don't give that the right authorship, and if you don't have senior leadership in food media of color, you know, chances are that people are not going to call that out. And I do think this year has been a mon monumental and books like The Rise as part of that. But I also think because, you know, um, everything that has happened in, 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 in major publishing houses, you know, obviously there was a big leadership change in Bon Appetit. We, you know, for us to get Don Davis at, at the, um, to be in charge is amazing. And to the number two there, Sonia Chopra, which is also an amazing um, woman and, and uh, writer and editor. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that there's gonna be big changes in the content because the leadership has changed. And why do you think do you th there's been such a silo in terms of recogn recognition of black cooks and just the diversity of black food? Has it been because of the gatekeepers with the industry? Has it been a little bit more that maybe there wasn't the proper documentation, like you were saying? Or is it a both and there? I think, I think it's layered and complicated for many reasons. First of all, I think that, um, you know, America's history when it comes to blackness uh, has, we were never fully written into history, right? And food is no different than that. But our food rituals are old, coming from Africa, coming to the Carolinas and so on, right? But since we were not in, in leadership in newspapers and magazines, uh, in made, mainstream newspapers and magazines, there hasn't been a call out. You know, uh, you look at Music has been way ahead of us. Sports has been way ahead of us. And now we're going through the same thing in food. Um, also because I think the way we entered this country through labor, working on the fields and working as domestic, adds another layer to this that many other ethnic groups didn't have to think about. You know? But it, you know, that has another part of this whole story. So... Uh, that makes it, you know, yet another chapter to it. But I'm glad these changes are happening and they should have happened way before. But um, I'm also excited by what's happening in present and future because through social media, there are less gatekeepers. Uh, there are more diverse voices. And that's really, really positive for American food. So for your book, you chose an interesting format for the recipes. They're all, in your words, in honor of a black chef or food expert that you profile in the book. Why and how did you decide on that particular format? Well, it was important for me, like most of my other books, of my other books have been about my 
just my journey in the singular, whether it was Swedish food or whether it was me uh, cooking a red rooster or so on, right? This book, I wanted to share the book with these incredible chefs that are out here right now, but also looking back and also explain, unpack that blackness can mean many things. Black food could have traveled through the great migration, through immigration and the difference between an Ethiopian American experience and a Jamaican American experience, right? Mm. So we need to understand it both through some multi layers. Immigration is one great white way. Migration is one, the great migration is one way. And then also, of course, uh, where you live in the countries and, and, and like Naisha Arrington is Asian American and African American. So her food speaks to that, right? Travel Bristol Joseph is from Guyana that lives, came out of New York, but lives in Texas. So his speak, food speaks out of that. So, you know, someone like Kwame has both Nigerian and Jamaican roots. So in the book, through the stories, you start to understand the layers and what black is. Sometimes the word doesn't even cover its incredible beauty and complexity. You profile, one of the, the chefs you profile is Leah Chase, who you've mentioned in other interviews as being a significant source of inspiration in your own life. Can you talk about Leah Chase's story and what she meant to you? I mean, she had an incredible life that really seems to epitomize what you were looking to do with this book. Yeah. I mean, Queen, you know, Queen Leah is everything to me. You know, she, um, just her life starting at the restaurant in the 40s, and the restaurant is still open to Chase run by her daughter, Stella, right? So being relevant in restaurant business as a family for over 70 years. Um, and this is in a, New Orleans, right? Yeah, New Orleans, exactly. And being, showing that you can be both, an, you know, female, black, owner of a business since the 40s. Hello, that's just amazing. Uh, then, but on top of that, also showing she was an advocate and an activist at the same time. You step into her room, her dining room, there were Jacob Lawrence, there were uh, Romar Bearden paintings, so clearly important for her to showcase African-American art. But then also the civil rights movement, a lot of the plannings was done in her restaurant because for black people, the word restaurant means very different. It was a place of safety and haven and Leah's restaurant was one of those places. So she gives us so much context to what it means to be a chef and a restaurateur from an era and a time that, that without the work that they did that generation, someone like myself wouldn't have a chance to be here. Yeah. And one of the details that really stood out for me from that story too, is that she wanted to kind of have a tablecloth kind of dining experience that wasn't happening with a lot of yes. um, restaurants for for black customers and to really just give that kind of fine dining experience. Um, I mean, she was always pushing me to aim higher, aim higher, Marcus. We have to show there's many different ways to dine. And even at her restaurant at Dookie Chase, Dookie is the name of her husband, her late husband, but the front store of the restaurant was a po- pobo shop, right? Where you can just pick up your sandwiches, eat quickly and leave, uh, or take them to go. And the back door was the fine dining area that you walked into the restaurant. So she was way ahead of her time in terms of concept, but also her aspirations. She never lowered her 
aim and our aspirations, you know? Yeah. And there's another, there were, of course, a couple Californians you profile in the book that caught my eye. Um, I think you did mention one before, Chef Naisha Arrington in Los Angeles, who's included in your remix chapter. Can you talk briefly about why you included, included her and also kind of what that remix chapter represents some more? I think, I mean, Naisha is just an incredible chef and an incredible person, but I also think in her story, there's so much that we can learn. Like the fact that she going to a grandmother in Cape Town, they spoke Korean here, a black woman learning Korean from her grandmother and, you know, both being close to Korean culture, but also African-American culture. So her food draws from several different cultures. And I think it's important to show that, that we're just not one, one thing, you know, there's another story of someone like chef Eric Gistel that has been at Le Bernardin's restaurant, three star Michelin in New York, for 20, over 25 years, right? But he also, he married, his wife is Japanese. So he has influences from that. He came from the Caribbean. So he has influences from that. So we are, you know, two people like Eric and Naisha shows how layered and complex our journeys are. And in Eric's case, very much that it's been an anonymous but very important journey um, that, I wanted to share that all these being a chef most of the time through our history, particularly for black chef has been an anonymous experience until basically 10 years ago. We're talking with Marcus Samuelson, chef, television personality and author about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. What questions do you have for chef Marcus Samuelson? Do you have a favorite black owned restaurant or black chef you want to shout out, whether they're professional or in your very own home? What do you appreciate about their cooking? What makes it special to you? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more with the chef and also get a little bit on his thoughts on the restaurant industry during COVID. That's all next. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking with Marcus Samuelson, chef, television personality, and author about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. His restaurants include Red Rooster with locations in Harlem, Miami, and London, as well as Ginny's Supper Club, Mark Burger, Marcus Montreal, a number of other restaurants. And he hosts No Passport Required on PBS and has served as a judge on Food Network's Chopped and ABC's The Taste. Um, before we got to the break, we were talking about um, one of the Californians featured in the book. And there's another one that I wanted uh, to hear from you on, because not every person you feature is a chef. And, for example, one of the people you profile is Shakira Simley, who is the director of the Office of Racial Equity for the city and county of San Francisco, who says food is political. Can you talk about including a voice like hers in this book? Yes. 
No, man. The chefs very often get in the center of the food conversation, but it's obviously so many people in the industry, people that are the, our voices, people behind the scene. And I just think Shakira, it's just one voice that wanted, I wanted to highlight because food advocacy and the work in terms of creating a more equitable table in terms of food, which is politics, which is a big deal, um, takes many voices. And in the book, you have people like food writer like Jessica Harris, but also Donna Pierce and Tony Tipton Martin. And when Jose and I set out to do the book, it was important that, yes, the majority of these stories are chefs, but there's so many other people in this field that we wouldn't call, be a part of the industry, couldn't call it out without um, people like that have really uh, helped us get the, get the word out uh, on, on a numerous different platforms and levels. And kind of speaking in terms of equity, that kind of could segue into looking at kind of what the es- restaurant industry has been facing during the pandemic. Uh, you know, a second stimulus package is finally on its way. Uh, I saw that the Independent Restaurant Coalition tweeted this coalition tweeted this morning uh, a statement that said, in part, this bill falls woefully short of giving 11 million independent restaurant workers the job security they need before the holidays. What does the restaurant industry need in terms of real effective support? I know the coalition has been advocating for to support restaurants through the Restaurants Act rather than just PPP loans. What's your, your perspective on that, also as a restaurant owner yourself? Well, we don't need loans. We need long-term solutions. The PPP loans are still loans. And to burden restaurant owners and the industry with more loans, that's a short-term solution, not a long-term solution. If you measure it against other countries that the restaurant gets 85% or 75% or 80% uh, uh, of the revenue back. Um, This is an unprecedented event that has hit the restaurant industry the hardest, right? And we are a collective of 11 to 16 million people, if you call it, think about the bakers and all the delivery ancillary jobs that are within our field. And then think about that in terms of black and brown businesses on top of that, that means that 50, 60% of these restaurants are not gonna come back, which means that 40, 50%, uh, 30 to 40% of our employers would be unemployed. So you, if you talk about a pool of 16 million, which is two New York cities, 30%, 40% unemployment, this is unbelievable numbers, big numbers that are not just gonna impact restaurants, it's gonna impact all of our communities. And a lot of beloved restaurants... Oh, go ahead. No, we need long-term solutions. And most politicians doesn't understand how restaurant works, right? The majority of the restaurants we talk about are mom and pop. There are maybe 8 to 12 employees. When they deal, you can see it in the act when they invited restaurateurs in. They invited only majority just chain restaurants. Well, chain restaurants live a very different life and fast food restaurant than the mom and pop restaurant that very much defines our American neighborhood that we're living. Right. And that's where we also saw kind of the yes. the scandal with Ruth Chris and being mm-hmm. able, yeah, and taking advantage of that. And um, 
you mentioned, you know, yeah, a lot of the beloved restaurants uh, in neighborhoods have had to close their doors for good. Um, and you started alluding to this, but what do we lose when we lose the independent family-owned restaurants? Well, you lose your neighborhood, the quality of the neighborhood, why you move to that place, maybe. You lose your barbershop, you lose that lay salon, you lose that coffee shop, that favorite bar. Um, the thing that makes your neighborhood lively and keeps the lights on. And sure, we can all order from big boxes and survive. That's not necessarily the quality of life that we signed up for, nor does it create the jobs and create the talking neighborhood, that vibrant neighborhood that maybe you signed up, why you moved to Oakland or why you moved to Harlem or why the, the why you moved to Queens, for example, just to mention some. And what are some structural things you think need to change for the industry to recover and be more equitable to some of the lowest paid workers? Well, if you think about, I mean, the industry is about to, we have to come out of this hole, which is going to be very difficult. And I do think that the industry will change because of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously built it in one way. I mean, I can just speak my own example. It took me 25 years to build up what we've done. It took two weeks to take it all down and convert. We converted Red Rooster, Harlem, and Newark, and Overtown to community kitchens and served over three, 300,000 meals together with World Center Kitchen. As we opening up, I'm actually in Red Rooster, Miami right now, in Overtown right now. As and that was a restaurant that was meant to open earlier this year, right? And was that was interrupted. Open That's close, when COVID came close, down. Open closed so many times. And I owe it all to the team that's done an incredible job that stayed with us. But we have to redo our model. That's what we're sitting with right now. Like we have to increase, start maybe with our takeout as the starting point, because who's to say that this can't happen again? So we have to rethink everything, reevaluate everything, and eventually that will re- we will reevaluate um, every aspect of the business. What I take pride in what a restaurant does, in a place like Overtown, a place like Harlem, we hire locally, we create jobs. We've created 90 jobs here in Overtown. There is no other employee that has 90 jobs here. We created 180 jobs in Red Rooster Harlem, on the larger scale, that's not a big, maybe a, a big, big operation for a lot of people, but it also creates life and a meaningful center of, of, of gravity to that neighborhood where people can meet and greet and, and a level of normalcy. Yeah. And the pandemic has also laid bare the many problems with our globalized system of food production and distribution. Do you have any thoughts on that piece of your industry and how to change it for the better? Well, there is a, that's a, it's a show by itself, you know, right. many thoughts on that, but not necessarily linked to the pandemic, but we always have to think about distribution to the neediest in this country. I think the pandemic highlighted it and pulled the curtain away and so showed, highlighted all the issues, the, not all, but some of the severe problems we have with a big part of America not getting access to healthcare, not getting access to, uh, you know, 
living food insecure. So there's poverty is obviously at, at core at this. And when the pandemic happens, it becomes even a bigger issue. Mm. And you wrote in an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that you not only believe the restaurant industry will survive, but that it will be better, more connected and led by more diverse voices once it's emerged from the pandemic. I know you've started touching on that a bit, but can you share more of your perspective on that and why you're so hopeful? I, I, I want to lead with hope. It's very important to keep myself going, to keep my team going. And as a leader in a, a leadership, I have to lead with hope um, because the negative news is out there every day. And, but it's also important to come up with solutions. Uh, a new entrepreneur, entrepreneurial endeavor that creates new jobs. Uh, so I, I do think as we, as we in under a attack under the pandemic and we're trying to figure this out as a, uh, as a collective, we have to also start to see, okay, how can we improve ourselves how, as an industry? What are the new opportunities that we didn't think about before? Because obviously consumer behavior has already changed. The way you interact today with food through ordering services are very different. And you are not going to go back and change those behaviors completely. Some of these behaviors you're going to keep because they are convenient to you. So how can we keep the good ones and then add the regular restaurants back in more traditional sense when, when we can go back to the new normal? Right. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Marcus Samuelson, chef, television personality and author about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Do you have questions for Chef Marcus Samuelson? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And we do have a tweet from Chris who says, I have been binge watching Chopped. So hearing one of my favorite judges, Marcus Samuelson, on Forum is awesome. <laughs> so a word from a fan there. Um, and I want to turn back to, to the book now. You, you write, if the United States can embrace kimchi and nigiri sushi, we can learn to eat fufu. And say that we ought to unpack why we accept one food but treat another as too different. Can you talk more about that? I really liked the way you framed that. I mean, the food is coding, right? And food is connected to too many, so many different things. First of all, so much of our food came from Africa, but got rerouted to Europe. If you think about chocolate and cocoa beans, right? You think about Belgian chocolate, but the cocoa bean come from Ghana, right? You think about wine was invented in Egypt, but we think about wine as Californian or something from France, right? And there lies a huge challenge and opportunity in reality. When we send aid to Africa, when we don't buy from Africa in the same way, when we don't tourist in Africa, again, when we just said aid, the price thing of a, of, of a certain food goes down, an experience goes down, right? Um, for many years, for example, Japanese food was expensive and Chinese food should be cheap. That is all linked to labor laws and how we traded with China versus Japan, for example. And the same thing is done with how we dealt with the continent of Africa 
and black excellence. So we think something from, let's say, a Caribbean uh, uh, takeout meal should be super affordable. Why we think that, I don't understand. But we, we price that at a certain level, a certain box, versus something that comes from another restaurant with a European uh, uh, um, uh, name to it should be, we accept as more expensive. That's all linked to trading. <laughs> of course, in the root of it, slavery, trading, tourism, and my immigration. Hmm. We have a comment here from Amanda who writes two words, Edna Lewis, and mm-hmm. giving a shout out to, I guess, her 1972 cookbook on Southern food. I believe Edna Lewis is is mentioned at some point in, in the book. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Can you, for someone like me, too, who is kind of new to, to that name, can you give us a, a little education on her? I mean, we have, we have some... Um, in the beginning of the book, I talk about what we owe to black women and Leah Chase, Edna Lewis, Sylvia Woods, Alberta Wright that owned Jezebel's in New York. And the list goes on and on and on. These were all women, black women, that led not only the move, move, movement, but created a dialogue for black food. And... Edna and Leah and Sylvia Woods are very well known in the industry, but what they did goes way beyond the industry. They should be American household names. And someone like Edna Lewis um, has opened more doors for now some, an author like myself or the authors that comes after her, you know, Jessica Harris, Tony Tipton Martin, and there were people like Leah, like um, Edna, that set now the table for, you know, next year, I know at least six of my friends are coming out, black friends are coming out with cookbooks. That's amazing. But most of that is possible due to the generations like Leah and Edna. Yeah. And, and it's just what also are a couple of kind of the favorite recipes that you enjoyed um, I know they're all kind of, it's hard to I mean, probably pick one, but are there a few that stand out for you maybe at this particular point in time today? Well, I, I, I love that, you know, my, my son that was part of, you know, was born 2016 when we started the book and has been part of the whole journey of the rice. And so Saza's pasta is a Ethiopian dorawat, it's a chicken stew. And then the next day we make this pasta with the rigatoni and a little bit of greens into it. And, he doesn't even like eating it. He just like, you know, see how the shape of the pasta changes as we boil it and then see me tossing the, the pasta and everything. So he's, he's been part of this book and uh, it's been one of the blessings during the pandemic to, after a rough day, come home to a four-year-old that just wants to play. So. And were there any recipes as you were kind of going through the process that really kind of pleasantly surprised you, that was kind of a cool discovery for you? Well, um, you wanted that uh, was my partner in making the recipes. You know, both, all three, say you wanted myself, we, are, we have African heritage. You wanted to say from Nigeria and mine from Ethiopia. And just rediscovering so much from West African food, like the similarities between let's say a jollof rice in the book 
and uh, Jambalaya from New Orleans, for example, there are real links there. We're thinking about uh, grits, and there's an African dish called pop. So just constantly looking at the similarities. similarities. And what's been fun about the book, too, is for me to re-engage with my friends that are across the country, you know, Rodney Scott and, and Nina Compton and, you know, Eduardo Jordan and Greg Goodet and just these amazing chefs that, uh, are, you know, that I wanted to make the book for, truly. And, and I'm so glad that we have, we can, in this moment, be across the country. And that's also why we mentioned in the book over 200 chefs in the back that we gave the Instagram handle to. So when people say, oh, I don't know any black chefs in my neighborhood, I'm like, it should be impossible to say that because this is not in New York or San Francisco. Black chefs, great black chefs are everywhere. You just have to do the research. We're talking with Marcus Samuelson, chef, television personality and author, about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. And if you have any questions for him, give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're also welcoming you to shout out a favorite black-owned restaurant or black chef that you know of, whether they're professional or in your very own home, what you appreciate about their cooking, what makes it special to you. And we'll have more with Marcus Samuelson after the break. I'm Ariana Prail, and for Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim, and we're talking with Marcus Samuelson, chef, television personality, and author about his new cookbook, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. He's also got a lot of restaurants, which include Red Rooster, with locations in Harlem, Miami, and London, as well as Ginny's Supper Club. He hosts No Passport Required on PBS and has served as a judge on Food Network's Chopped and ABC's The Taste. And we're also welcoming you, our listeners, to join us. You can call us at 866-733-6786 or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, Marcus Samuelson, I did want to ask you about the backlash you received for a recipe you created for the book that was inspired by a Haitian Zoup Jumu when it was included in Bon Appetit magazine. Some found your interpretation of the dish to be offensive because Zoup Jumu has such a deep and powerful cultural history tied to Haitian independence. And I know you've apologized um, for that. And what did you take away from the feedback you received in that, that whole conversation? I took away that, first of all, I'm grateful that people are 
opinionating and guiding and you can have the best intent in the world, but uh, you can still make mistakes. And in the book, you know, we give it a lot of context mm. when it went from the book to magazine to social media, that context was taken away. And, uh, you know, that's something that I am, I learned. And, and I think it's important to uh, acknowledge when we, when, I was wrong and, and my team was wrong and we made a mistake. But our intent was always to highlight and broadcast. And uh, I have a lot of Haitian friends that guided me through this. Greg Godet was one of them. I spoke to chef of the um, Haitian Association of Chefs in Haiti. Uh, I have a lot of Haitian friends that are not in, in the food world, but they're very passionate about the food. And I'm, I, I'm learning. I'm going to go to Haiti and cook as well. So I think it's very, like, I take, I'm being Ethiopian. If somebody would misrepresent an Ethiopian dish, it would be the same thing. So I appreciate mm. uh, where I can learn something. You have to own your mistake. Um, I fell in love with Haitian food through my friend, Mark Baptiste. And then actually one of the episodes of No Passport Required, we focused on Sukhum Moon and its history. So I felt I'd done a lot of work on that. and had a lot of, uh, knowledge and this was something that i was like this is such an incredible story so again i own my mistakes i own the mistakes that we did as a collective uh, and i've had it's been great to speak to so many from the community and understand what we did wrong And I know one of the comments on Twitter in response to your apology said in part, this dish is a Haitian independent symbol and is linked to freedom from slavery. Do not alter it. Um, when it comes to cooking and creating recipes, kind of to zoom out a little bit, are there, should there be some sacred cows that are left alone, even in this age of fusion food? What would be your thoughts on that? I, I think that the, you know, the, 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 the word... Lo- inspired by which we used in the book um there's a there's an idea so much of the food that we do as chefs is inspired by i have no pretense to to know another culture's dish to make it exact right and i think that food has a lot of culture meaning you know my wife come from a, a region where we eat raw beef tatar in a very specific way if you would not do it that way it couldn't be called that dish so i i fully understand and it, and it was something that i've apologized for and i don't want it to stop our curiosity of of, of food because that's how we discover right um and um, i think context is everything it's like how do you set it up how do you set a dish up and we clearly made a mistake on that this time and that's something again once again i've been uh, apologetic for and um and I'm also glad that there is, that's the beauty of America, that you have a push and pull, that you have checks and balances. And, and, and that means to create a dialogue like that um, is, was important and is important. I'm sure it won't be the last time. We have some comments coming in. A listener writes, thank you for mentioning Rodney Scott. I saw him featured on Chef's Table on Netflix and was blown away by his story. My husband wants to travel to South Carolina just to eat his food when the pandemic is over. How did you decide which stories you put in your book? Must have been hard to narrow it down? You know, 
Rodney's story was not hard to narrow down because I adore Rodney. And, and he, yes, go to South Carolina and, and eat at his restaurant and it's worth it. So it's going to be an amazing trip. But the rise is not a list. There's so many incredible chefs and people that I know that are not in the book that could have easily, uh, you know, would fit the narrative. But it was important to have a broad book showing Africa that we do with Chef Michael, showing, uh, you know, this is not just a big city book, uh, showing stories that are in, uh, in smaller cities and showing diversity that is not just chefs. So for me, it was very important to have a broader book and show that wherever you are, you can aspire to be part of this, um, whether you are a consumer, whether you're a reader, whether you're a chef or a food writer or so that was the most important thing. Show diverse black stories. There are many black voices. All right. Well, let's go to a caller. We have Dominique Kren in San Francisco. You're on forum. Hi. I just wanna. I just wanna say hello. Uh, and you know, first of all, I appreciate your show. Hey, Marcus. What's going on? Just wanna How are you? And, and, and I'm good, and um, I just want to say that, you know, I, I think it's important to support um, any chef, but especially black chefs. You know, I've been, I have a lot of friends um, that, I, that I know through the years, through all over the world, and um, thank you so much for shedding a light on this, because this is much needed. And Dominique, and also, you, I, just want, I just wanted to say thank you to you. You know, two years ago, three years ago, Dominique came to Harlem to cook with us in Harlem. And she did an amazing dinner. And it's something that my chefs, my cooks still talk about. And you always share your talent. And also congratulations to you, to your memoir, which is absolutely amazing. And you inspire so many chefs around the world with your story. So we, we thank you for everything that you do, Dominique. Yeah, but thank you so much for, for what you're doing also. You, you're quite inspiring. So I just want to say hello and congratulations also with you. And thank you for being on the show. And thank you for giving him a voice because you are amazing. And, and I think this world needs more of you out there. And I think the idea is also to understand, you know, that food is um, um, a vehicle to, uh, to communicate to others our story and where we come from, and and the voice of those black chefs are so are so important to understand what the world is about, you know. And I think it's time, you know. It's been time for a long time, and I'm just so glad that it's happening. So thank you. And can we cook again together? <laughs> yes, I come I come out to the bay next time. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, and yes, and happy holiday to all of you guys. Thank you. Happy oh, thank you. That's beautiful. That was so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Nice. Glad we could orchestrate a mini reunion on, on Forum's yeah. air. Uh, we have a listener who asked, what do you think of efforts such as Yelp putting Black-owned business labels or lists? Do you think that makes a difference? Is that the best way to market Black chefs and restaurants? I, I think it's, you know, during this time, Black businesses, as all businesses, but Black business particularly, need all the help it can get. Because the access to generational wealth and the access to um, structural institutional wealth like regular banks are very, very hard for us to get. So if we can get support from uh, different platforms, 
place. I think it's uh, exactly the type of focus we need in this time. Hopefully, we can get more. Uh, we can get back to the table and talk about institute get access to institutional capital. Um, and it will only happen if there is a real push. All right, let's go to caller Jared in Santa Barbara. Jared, you're on. Hi, uh, Chef Samuelson. An absolute honor to hear you, and I want to thank you for being, you know, such a such an authentic person in this world of celebrity chefdom. Um, my question is: uh, I traveled to New Orleans last year and, and ate at the chef's um, restaurant that you mentioned. How much? And I took a cooking class there. How much do you address in your book about the development of flavor that I find much more present in Black cuisine? Um, and how it relates to the accessibility of different ingredients. Well, I, 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 in the book, we talk a lot about the pantry and the pantry of sometimes new words is awkward to pronounce, but once we get over their home, there could, we also get all over the awkwardness of taste. And that's a very, very important uh, journey, right? Think how much we learned about each other through food. So I do think that acknowledging food, getting it up to become mainstream, getting us to pronounce things and then articulate it, because then once we do that, we then know what to look for. If you talk about filet and New Orleans and gumbo, well, if you never heard the word filet, you don't know what to look for, for example. If I'll talk to you about a Berbere and Ethiopian Dora what, but if you never had Berbere, uh, then you don't know what to look for. So we can't read, we can't discover the nuances of food if we never hear about these terms. The way we learn about wines, you know, we are very clear about, you know, a Pinot, a uh, Malbec, or let's say a Merlot, because we've been learning through so much information all this information, the different grapes, the terroirs, that coffee, the same thing. An Ethiopian coffee has a very different tonality than a Colombian coffee. So we've done the work on articulating that. It's the same thing with food, definitely food that comes from the continent of Africa. Great. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Question. Oh, Jared, did you want to follow up? Well, yeah, it's funny he mentioned filet, and I, I love wine, and I'm in the Central Coast where we grow a lot of great Pinot Noir, and you mentioned Ethiopian coffee, all these things that I just love. But when I went through New Orleans, I was trying to find filet because here in Santa Barbara, there's no place to get it. Yep. No, and, I'm, and, and so that's why it's important to get it up to a na na national conversation, and that's why you wanna, you, we want to post things that are so important because if we – if we don't get outside sort of a just a Southern European or European, Western European palate, then other ethnic foods will always be so different, right? And I think if you look at, I love, for example, how far Korean food, American Korean food have come. And it's unapologetic when, you know, uh, you hear words like kojijan or kimchi and so on. And I love the fact that it's never it, that it hasn't changed, and it's up to us as food lovers to learn to enjoy it, to mispronounce it, and eventually to pronounce it right. And then once we do all that, we learn how to appreciate. We get the keys to a new cuisine, which we all are benefited for. 
All right. Well, thanks for calling in with your question, Jared. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Chef Marcus Samuelson, television personality and author, as well as chef, about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We have a few other comments. I just want to shout out R.C. writes. Just want to shout out Tanya Holland of Oakland. She was quite groundbreaking here in the Bay Area. Kate Sweets, glad to hear Chef Samuelson educating the culinary community community and beyond. Too many black accomplishments continue to be erased or segregated from the conversation about world food culture. And Grace writes, I would like to give a shout out to a great neighborhood bakery in Oakland, Gregory's Gourmet Bakery, also known as the Underground Baker. Everything is so delicious. Black-owned business, phenomenal human being, generous soul, and amazing smile. Go check out his new mural depicting some of the famous black chefs and bakers and also images of his own personal heroes and inspiration, his mom and grandma. Um, So those are really just lovely shout outs to be getting here. And you also include some recipes that are in kind of an honor of your family and in honor of your wife, specifically Maya. And I know you mentioned one of them before um, around your son. She's also Ethiopian. And in her profile, I f- thought it was really funny. You share how her family members think what you do is, quote unquote, cute. But you, kind of world famous chef, aren't allowed in the kitchen when she oh, and her no. sisters are cooking. cooking. <laughs> I am the fourth best Ethiopian cook in my household. You have to know your place. Right. <laughs> and, you know, if we do a meal in the house, okay, Marcus can do it. But if it's a big holiday, oh, no, no, no. They fly in from Toronto, from London, and, you know, move me aside. And sometimes I can chop because I do, like, oh, you can chop fast. So I do, I, I get some credit for peeling and chopping. But once it comes to putting it together. Yeah, you're, you're definitely sous chef, it sounds like. Yeah, for that. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so what are some of the staple dishes in the Samuelson household around the holidays? Uh, you know, it is uh, groblax. We definitely do some groblax with some mustard and some crisp bread and some injera. Tons of Ethiopian food. Uh, Dorawat I mentioned before and the side dishes around that. Lentils. Um, there's something we eat a lot for lunch. This is a chickpea puree called shiro. Very simple. And I like we like to eat a simple lunch because... For dinner, we eat more uh, fish, a lot of fish as well, because, you know, it's it's just lighter that way. And, and, uh, right now, I'm, right now, we're actually all here in, in uh, Miami at the restaurant um, and, uh, you know, reopening Red Rooster in Novotel, which has been a, a movie by itself. But we're back and my son, Zion, is running around here and, you know, it's growing up in our restaurant. Yeah. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more caller here, Farah in Santa Barbara. What's your comment briefly? Okay. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Chef. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to um, a, a black chef here in town. Um, and her name is Sandra Zelli, Sandra Aduzelli. And she's the owner of um, Gypsy Hill Bakery. Uh, Gypsy with an I, not a Y. And I, I think it's really important um, to highlight her work, she comes from England, and um, she has the most uh, complex flavors, really delicious. And, you know, given the complexities of what people are facing with the coronavirus, I, I think she's doing a really admirable job with um, to-go to go orders. So I just, I, um, Santa Barbara typifies white privilege in a lot of ways, and, and I think your show and the subject of today is really important. Great. Thanks for shouting that out, Farah. And 
And um, Chef Samuelson, before we let you go shortly, any advice in general on enjoying food and cooking during these challenging times? I know I'm I'm kind of a reluctant cook, and I've been dabbling more just because there is more time and more more time at home. What's what's some of your advice or recommendations for for folks like well, me? Well, I think first of all, cook a lot, cook together, and um, you know something like the rice, whether you black or not. I do think that. This gives you a chance to talk about race, talk about culture around food in the most delicious way. You know, I would say wherever you are located, uh, buy seasonal, you know, do not, you know, I always say that, like, there is actually at least 12 seasons going on, not four. You know, every every month or so, there's something else coming into that market that is just in peak season. Look for those things. Great relationships uh, with your mongers, whether it's your um, seafood monger or your butcher or your farmer's market so they tip you off a week before what's coming in and so you can always eat the freshest uh, and the best in times like this well thank you so much for joining me today marcus samuelson chef telev- television personality and author his latest book is the rise black cooks and the soul of american food i hope you have a great holiday chef samuelson and also happy sol- winter solstice to everybody there you go. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate you guys so much. It was wonderful to come on, and happy holidays to all of you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. This has been Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. I'll see you tomorrow, or talk to you tomorrow anyway. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.